So authority, like many other words about power, authority evokes strong and often visceral responses. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want my freedom curtailed. I like power. I like being right. We operate out of our personal experiences with authority. Often this history includes old wounds, unskillful theologies, valid fears, and unexplored beliefs in a religious setting like ours. An old assumption may be that any conversation on authority refers to oppressive notions of God or stodgy, controlling religious church leadership. But in our liberal religious tradition, which is free pulpit and free pew, our conversations about authority are not and must not be limited by those doctrines. Our free pew means we don't require anyone to have a theological declaration to sit among us. And this is challenging. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline because it means we don't regard people first and foremost by their beliefs. And our free pulpit means the church calls its leadership, its minister, to speak her mind. And it's a relationship of trust and freedom that gets developed over time within our covenanted community. And it's exactly because of this balance of power and freedoms that we can freely explore the value and limits of authority. So it's our theme for January. Many ideas about church power and authority come in our doors. Some people walk into hope, having been taught that scripture, the Bible, is the sole authority for one's life decisions. Others have been taught that a specific religious tradition, its accumulated wisdom, is authority. And still others come from our liberal faith or other different liberal faiths where reason is the primary source of authority. And many who sit among us have been unchurched and actually come here looking for, well, what is a legitimate form of authority? When am I right? And when should I listen to someone else? And our tradition emphasizes this individual belief that you are the final arbiter of authority. But it's not the whole equation. It's only part of it. The fabulous part of my job is I get all asked all these theological questions. And Anne wants to make it a program, so I have to do it in front of you all. <laughs> so, but my job as your minister as I define it, is not to have pat-ready theological answers. This is what I think, and so that's what you should think, too. Instead, I think I'm charged with carefully listening and asking questions to encourage deeper and broader thinking 
were all concerned, including myself. I got an email this week commenting on our monthly theme, and I asked permission to share it today because it may express what others are thinking. In fact, this person said, use my name, and I thought, no, I wanted to represent every man, every woman. So this email frames the fear and anger many of us bring to this topic. And the email reads, if one is allowed to have authority, is it authority or service? I do not feel any lay or paid member of our community has authority over me and my life or decisions. I'm a volunteer. When or if I ever feel otherwise, I will not participate at all. I think this is a laughable concept among Unitarians and other thinking people. What do you need authority for? I love the email. It got me thinking in different ways than I had been. And the last question is the one that's most critical for me. What do we need authority for? In other words, why are we even bothering to talk about it? I maintain authority is unavoidable. Every, every relationship involves a flow of power and consequently an exchange of authority. Every relationship. Issues of power are not how we normally frame our social contracts with each other. I wrote an email back. Couldn't help myself. I wrote, in life, others constantly have legitimate authority over us. Think laws of the land, all who enforce them, from that stop sign to the police. The IRS has authority over us as we begin getting all our receipts from 2014. Supervisors at work do. Teachers do. And those who hold our debt or loans do. At the same time, we regularly exert legitimate authority over others. Think young children or elderly that are in your care employees if you're a manager or a supervisor, and organizations where we volunteer or serve on a board. Even in friendship and partnerships, trading authority shapes the relationship. For example, my husband Joe and I share authority to pay our bills. Early in our marriage, we kept separate accounts still trying to navigate how to combine our financial commitments. So we've kind of swapped where that authority lie. And another example is keeping confidences. The minute someone says, I have something to tell you, but I'd rather you not tell anyone else, that's an exchange of authority that you can accept or not. And I think we'd be terribly remiss here at Hope if we didn't regularly discuss how power and decision-making work in our lives. These conversations matter, especially in our church community held together by 
promises and covenants and democracy and love. It matters in our choices of social justice. I'm sorry we didn't get to hear Sue Ames because she would have been talking about what are the ramifications of the government taking full authority for a woman's personal authority for her reproductive freedom. It's a conversation we get to keep having. And authority isn't a simple on-off switch. I think that's an inaccurate, one-dimensional view of power. It is a nuanced, fluid thing. And we have to navigate a tangled, sophisticated web of authority in our lives. We have to ask, what are our moral principles? When is authority oppressive, unnecessarily limiting, illegitimate? When, it is, when is it appropriate and helpful and even compassionate? And I think the most pertinent question is how do we share authority? Trading off power in a healthy, constructive way. And I think these are all valid, thinking, necessary, Unitarian questions. So what do we need authority for? We need it to exist. We need it to accomplish anything beyond our individual efforts. We need it to live within all forms of community, be it church, family, neighborhood, city, world. We need it to support each other and in turn to be supported. My email correspondent jumps immediately to the oppressive notion of authority over. And I think discussions about authority often veer into that stereotyped version of it as big and remote and immutable. And I think that fear is really understandable. We arise out of a Protestant tradition protesting illegitimate forms of religious and civic authority. And one ancient root underlying our fear of authority is that disturbing story of Abraham binding his son Isaac for sacrifice. You did a great job reading Woody's words. Thank you, Larry. And that version isn't too far from the version in Genesis. In the Bible version, God calls Abraham by name. There's a pattern here. And Abraham answers, here I am. And God then says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll show you. So the story, like much of the Old Testament, is narrated by this all-knowing third-person observer, has access to God and to Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham seems, in this telling, to fully accept God's authority. And as we know, begins to carry out the tragic request. 
And from our 21st century perspective, it is a jarring, appalling story. Particularly, particularly since Isaac is saved in the end by another intervention by God. God seems capricious and fickle when an angel of the Lord commands, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And Abraham looked up, saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, and took the ram and offered it as the burnt offering instead of his son. There are a wide number of contemporary social critics, such as anthropologist Carol Delaney, who ask, why why is the willingness to sacrifice one's child the quintessential model of faith? Why not the passionate protection of children? She asks a really important question because all three Abrahamic religions tell the story. It is foundational for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The violent history of these religions supports Delaney's accusation of this story being a moral legacy where we have been taught not to question authority of fathers, even though in the process we betray children. She writes about its various effects to all the various meanings of father, from Abraham as the patriarch of three religious traditions to our prolonged, institutionalized, cultural patriarchy. She points out all the ways children have been caught up in wars, refugee camps, prisons. She is especially damning of child abuse carried out most frequently by fathers or their surrogates and by priests, the very fathers who stand in for God and whose mission it is to protect children. The glorification of an unquestioned obedience to God's authority is the most common interpretation of the binding of Isaac, but as I reread it several times preparing for today, I saw something else in the story. Isaac, unlike the Woody Allen version, does speak in the Bible <clears throat> version, and he uses the exact same language as God when he's calling for his father. Father, father. And Abraham responds, I am here, like he did with God. Next, Isaac asks, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac. Isaac is the one questioning the blind authority. His youth doesn't mean he lacks great wisdom. Because Isaac mirrors God's wording, his question takes on a very godlike ring, despite coming from a child. The rightness of Isaac's doubt is confirmed later by that messenger of God. 
do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. So we dwell on this story of father and son because it still speaks today. (coughs) Sorry. If we dismiss it as simplistic, hold on a minute. I'm tangled up in myself. If we dismiss that story as simplistic, we are interjecting our bias blind spot, a common cognitive error. We naturally assume that everyone else is more susceptible to thinking errors, especially those unenlightened people more than 2,000 years ago. What could they know? Yet we don't know whether the story was originally heard by listeners as a story about blind obedience to God and authority, or the wisdom of children, or maybe even the really real temptation as parents to sometimes want to throttle our children. (laughs) The story really could be an antidote to child abuse. So humility and curiosity are useful when we talk about authority. Authority is not evil, all evil or all good. It depends on how we use it. As Unitarian Universalists, our work is more challenging than in the traditionally orthodox ones, where lines of authority are cut and dried, or more cut and dried, or rejecting an unequivocal blind obedience to God, Christ, or any other religious leader. We must regularly ask where does legitimate authority reside? in our community. We can talk about authority here at Hope in Concrete's term. (coughs) In concrete terms, Hope's board doesn't laugh at its authority to manage the church's money wisely, pay employee salaries, pay taxes, fix the building, all the other things over which it has authority. And the board leadership rotates now, so authority gets handed off. Committees have authority, too, to make all sorts of decisions. And I have a ministerial code of ethics I abide by as authoritative. You can read it online at the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association. It's long. And I'm hired by the board and you all, so you have authority over me. We tend to talk more about the individual as the sole source of authority in our Unitarian circles. And yes, individual reason and experience are critical. They're not the sole source of authority. We don't exist in a vacuum. Humans cannot exist apart from others. From the time we're babies dependent on caregivers until the final breath we take. So I repeat, every relationship involves the flow of power and negotiating authority. 
We temper and cross-check our individual conclusions with other sources of valid authority. Can I switch microphones? Okay. Yeah, so sorry, people. We're just going to briefly talk about four other ones that we use to temper our individual authority. First, our collective community. We temper each other. We find truth is most likely disclosed in the context of a group, of a congregation. We get love and nurturance, feedback and critique. A second is is from our Unitarian Universalist traditions. I frequently hear, that's how we do things at Hope. Or, how is that Unitarian? (laughs) We're not afraid to innovate, yet we consider the past and what's worked as important. A third source comes from lessons of nature, a life-giving authority for our actions and worldview and Lastly, we make room for the wisdom of other religious traditions. We can talk about the Bible and the Buddhist teachings in one breath. In reality, no authoritative source stands alone. Each requires the counterbalancing wisdom of all the others. So that reading that Carrie read, the Buddhist teaching on authority, I value it because he's not just talking about questioning authority, but what's the measuring stick for whether the authority is illegitimate, oppressive? And the Buddha says that we have to heed whether the authority and the use of power when adopted and carried out leads to harm and to suffering then you should abandon it may it be so